Well, do turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew and to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and we will begin our reading today in verse 29. I would ask you to stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but this word of God will not pass away. Let's give our attention to it. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And that sends a reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. On August 4th, 2014, there was a commemorative event that was held throughout the city of London. Uh, The event was simply referred to as Lights Out. Uh, This event took place exactly 100 years to the hour after Britain had joined the First World War. The event lasted a single hour from 10 p.m. to 11 p.m., and it marked Britain's last hour of peace as she awaited Germany's response to her ultimatum of war. In this memorial event, millions of people throughout the city of London turned off the lights in their homes at the same time. Uh, The celebratory Blackpool illuminations were turned off. The Houses of Parliament went dark. The BBC killed its lights. Floodlights on town halls, lamps on bridges, lights in local businesses and churches and theaters throughout the city all went dark in the same moment. The event was inspired 
by the now famous words of Sir Edward Grey. You see, Sir Edward Grey was the foreign secretary leading up to World War I, and he had just returned to his office after telling Parliament that war with Germany was inevitable. And as he was there in his office talking with his friend, he happened to be looking out his window, and he saw the lamplighters in the streets of London, and he made the haunting remark, the lamps are going out all over Europe, and we shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. His friend was John Spender, the editor of the Westminster Gazette, who published those now famous words that have been used throughout history to summarize that great devastation we call World War I, the lamps are going out all over Europe. Sir Edward Gray saw the lamps going out as a sort of metaphor for the darkness and gloom of war that was about to descend upon the world. The Bible uses similar metaphors. Metaphors of gloom and thick darkness to describe the darkness of God's judgment as it falls upon the nations throughout history. And today we see a very poignant example of that in the passage before us. And so as we consider this passage, let me give you three points to help structure your thinking. First, we are going to see the lights extinguished. In verse 29, as the sun and the moon and the stars become a metaphor for very dark days. Secondly, we're going to see the Lord exalted in verses 30 through 31, as we see the Son of Man exalted in heaven and coming on the clouds. And then finally, we're going to see in verses 32 through 35, a lesson explained as Jesus sums up his warnings with the parable of the fig tree. So the lights extinguished, the Lord exalted, and the lesson explained. Uh, But before we dive right in here, it's important that I try to remind you and summarize for you what Jesus has been teaching in this Olivet Discourse. Now, the Olivet Discourse actually begins before they get to the Mount of Olives. It began with Jesus' seventh and final woe to God's people. As he said in verse, chapter 23 and verse 36, On you will come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then as he laments over Jerusalem, he says, see your house is left to you desolate. And then Jesus leaves that house. And the desolation of that temple begins as he departs for the Mount of Olives. And you'll remember that as they are departing for the Mount of Olives, the disciples look back, marveling at that house and that temple complex, and they say, look, teacher, what marvelous stones... And what marvelous buildings. In their minds, they could not imagine anything more permanent than those massive stones. 
those stones that surely must endure. To which Jesus can only reply, Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And it was that ominous prediction of Jesus that caused them to ask their question, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What they believed to be one event, Jesus explains, will actually come in two stages. There will be the end of Israel and its temple and Israel as a covenant people, but there will also be the end of the age. And all of Matthew 24, Jesus uses to make this distinction clear to us. On the one hand, the temple's end will be preceded by signs and a warning signal to flee, and it will come upon this generation. But the end of the age, on the other hand, would be preceded by no signs. It would come without warning. It would come like a thief in the night, and concerning that day and of that hour, nobody would know. And it has been my assertion that uh, as we have looked at this passage, that the very structure of the passage itself makes this clear to us. That this first ending is described through verse 35 where you have the bookend, all these things will come upon this generation. And then the second picks up in verse 36. So here we find ourselves today in verses 29 through 35. That means we're still in that first section, but we are bringing that first section of Jesus' teaching to a conclusion. Last week, we considered the signs and the signal leading up to the great tribulation, which would be experienced throughout Jerusalem. Today, we pick things up in verse 29, where the lights are about to go out. The lights are about to be extinguished. Verse 29, we read immediately, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, And the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now let me just concede and admit that what Jesus is describing here can be difficult for us, especially as modern readers, to wrap our heads around. We are not used to this kind of figurative, apocalyptic language. Clearly, the images that Jesus uses of judgment, uh, in these images, he is invoking images that are cosmic in scale. It's not just street lamps that are about to go out. It is the sun, moon, and stars. It is what we call the luminaries, the very lamps of heaven itself. And when he combines that with speaking of his coming on the clouds, I I think it's understandable why many have interpreted this to be a reference to the second coming of Christ. Again, it sounds like the end of the world. Of course, the great difficulty with that is that very nagging word, immediately. 
immediately after the tribulation of those days. What days? And what tribulation? These days that Jesus has been talking about and the tribulation that He has just been describing. The things that would come upon this generation. Verse 9, He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and to death. Verse 21, He says, Then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. Whatever we say about these cosmic signs, we must understand that they followed immediately after the tribulation of those days. Of the tribulation that came upon Jerusalem. Okay, so what then do we say about these signs? If I took a poll and I asked you how many of you grew up thinking this was about the end of the world and this was about Jesus' second coming... I'd guess better than 80% of you would say that's what you grew up thinking. That's what I grew up thinking. So how should we interpret these things? Well, how do we interpret things that are difficult to understand in the Bible? We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. We use the analogy of Scripture. So let me just tell you what I think this is saying And then I will try to prove it from the analogy of Scripture. What I believe this is saying is this is using very figurative, apocalyptic language to describe that final destruction of Jerusalem and the going out of its lights. And it's, it's not just something that I think because it fits my interpretation, because I used to interpret this passage entirely differently. I think this... Because I believe this is the exact language that the Bible uses throughout the Scriptures to describe when God comes in judgment upon nations. Now let me give you a few examples, and let me just ask you to pay careful attention to the figurative language that is used here. For example, when the Lord came in judgment against Babylon, as He was, Isaiah says, stirring up the Medes. Against them. Isaiah describes the coming of the Lord in this way Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath, with fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, the sun will be dark at its rising. And the moon will not shed its light. This coming of the Lord in wrath is to do what? It's to make desolation. We've heard that in Matthew's Gospel. Your house is being left to you desolate. The signal to flee is the abomination that will make desolation. And the figurative language that is used here is of the stars of heaven and the constellations not giving their light. The sun is darkened. The moon is not shedding its light. It sounds eerily similar to this coming in judgment on Jerusalem, doesn't it? Only here, it is not the Medes that are being stirred up against Babylon. Here, it is the Romans that are being stirred up against Babylon. Israel, 
Again, Isaiah 34, God describes his coming in judgment on Edom now. And he describes it in this way. All the hosts of heaven, that is the sun and the moon and the stars, shall rot away and the skies shall roll up like a scroll and all of their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Again, in Ezekiel 32, God describes his coming in judgment on Egypt like this. I will blot you out, and I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And all the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you and put darkness on your land. Now let me just ask. When God came in judgment, when He rode the clouds, and He came against Babylon, and He came against Edom, and He came against Egypt, did the sun and the moon literally stop shining? Did the stars literally fall out of the heavens? like leaves from a fig tree? Or is that figurative language that is describing the lights going out? There may be some correlation between the leaders of nations and the luminaries. Some have done some excellent work on that. But regardless, what is clear is that what is being described in this cosmic apocalyptic language is a time of terrible judgment and deep darkness. And so I would ask you, if that is the exact figurative language that God uses of His coming in judgment on all these other nations, how can we fail to understand that that is the point being made here? That at the end of this tribulation, immediately after those days, the lights will go out for Israel. The lights are being extinguished. And yet, even as the lights are going out, the Lord is being exalted. And that brings us to our next point in verses 30 through 31, where we see the Lord exalted. Verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now many will read this and think, well, surely this is a reference to the second coming of Christ. And I would answer very simply, no. I I think actually the Bible teaches us that this is very clearly a reference to the Son of Man in His ascension and exaltation receiving a kingdom and power and dominion and glory. Uh, You see, this is the fulfillment of a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 through 14 about the Son of Man, that messianic title that we have seen throughout the book of Matthew. In Daniel chapter 7, here's what we read. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And note the direction. And he came to the Ancient of Days, 
And he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Where is the Son of Man coming to? He is coming up into heaven. He's coming to the Ancient of Days. He's being presented before God Himself. He's being given a kingdom and dominion and glory. And Jesus is telling us that this generation will see that prophecy come to fulfillment. That the One who has been among them declaring Himself to be the Son of Man is going to be exalted. The ascension of the Son of Man to the heavenly throne will be the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. This is not speaking of some sign in the heavens that you should be looking out for. The Son of Man is the sign. The very fact that the Son of Man who was on earth is now in heaven and enthroned, that is the sign. And we can be sure of that because Mark and Luke do not even include the language of the sign. They simply say, when you see the Son of Man in heaven. And indeed, they will see the Son of Man in heaven. Acts tells us that as the apostles were looking up into heaven, a cloud came and took Jesus out of their sight and receiving Him into That heavenly kingdom, the sign of the Son of Man, is that the Son of Man is in heaven. And we've said many times that this Son of Man language is a royal messianic title. And what is marvelous about this is that when the Son of Man ascends, where did the Jews expect Him to ascend? Mount Zion, Jerusalem up to that royal court. But when the Son of Man ascends, He does not ascend up any earthly mountain. He ascends into heaven itself. He ascends on the clouds of heaven. He's presented with everlasting dominion. The disciples thought the destruction of Jerusalem must mark the end of the world because they expected that it was from Jerusalem that Jesus would reign But He is not reigning from an earthly Jerusalem. He is reigning now from the heavenly Jerusalem. Having made propitiation for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. There He sits at the Father's right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Calvin was surely right when he said of Daniel's prophecy, this ought properly to be understood of the commencement, the beginning of the reign of Christ, and ought not be connected with its final close as many interpreters force and strain the passage. Even in Calvin's day, many read this in two different ways. Uh, We should be charitable with those who read it in another way. And if you read it differently than me, I pray you'd be charitable with me. But I am explaining to you what I believe the Scriptures teach so plainly. 
And if we have any doubt about this, if you're left with any lingering doubts about this, just turn two, maybe three pages in your Bible to Matthew chapter 26 and to verses 63 through 65 where Jesus is now standing before Caiaphas the high priest and the high priest puts him under an oath and says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, are you the Messiah? Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What Jesus was claiming was not missed, apparently, on the high priest. He was claiming that he was that son of man who was to be exalted in power from Daniel's prophecy and that he, like God himself, would ride on the clouds. And I think that helps us to understand the last part of verse 30, that it's not only Jesus' exalted appearance in heavens. Just think of that. Jesus, a man, your brother, one of us, is sitting on heaven's throne. That just gives me the chills to think that God has exalted a man. True, His only begotten Son, God of God, light of light, but forever joined to our humanity and now sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the high priest did not misunderstand who he was claiming to be. But it's not only Jesus' exalted appearance in heaven, it's the fact that he's coming on the clouds. Now, there is a question here, and I don't know that I have the answer. Is this a reference to the ascension itself? Coming on the clouds, interpreting Daniel in that way. It could be. I think, however, that it's actually once again, language regarding the judgment on Jerusalem. I think this is just biblical language of the way that God rides the clouds like His own chariot. He ascends, Jesus ascends on a cloud. He comes in judgment on Jerusalem on a cloud. And He will come again on clouds. In the same way you saw Him, He will come. The Bible uses this language, for example, Uh, in Psalm 104, that God makes the clouds His chariot and He rides on the wings of the wind. But particularly, this is the language that's used in context of judgment. Uh, Like, for example, in Isaiah 19.1, Behold, the Lord Yahweh is riding a swift cloud coming against Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence, and the hearts of the Egyptians will melt within them. What is unique, it seems to me, is that it is now the exalted Son of Man who rides on glorious clouds in judgment such that all the tribes of the land shall mourn. That is, of course, another Old Testament allusion. Don't stumble over the fact that I translated it, all the tribes of the land. It's the same word in Greek, land and earth. 
I prefer land because this is an allusion to Zechariah's prophecy that the twelve tribes would look upon God's deliverer whom they had pierced and they would mourn as one mourns for an only child. When I put the evidence of all of this Scripture together, it could not be more clear to me that this is not a reference to the second coming of Christ. This is a reference and fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of the Son of Man that he should be exalted to heaven, that he should be given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that he should sit at God's right hand, and that he should even make the clouds his chariots. And what does this risen and exalted Christ do? Well, he sends out his messengers to gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. This is not a reference to a so-called rapture. Uh, This is a reference to the gospel era as God sends his messengers out to the four corners of the earth. Now, one of the reasons that people stumble over this, and you may be stumbling over this, is because you look in your ESV translation and you read here that he's sending out his angels. And again, that Greek word, angelos, which is often translated angels, uh, is a word that sometimes refers to those heavenly messengers that we call angels, angelic beings. But it is a word that often refers to earthly messengers. John the Baptist, for example, is called an angelos. He is one of God's messengers, the spies who come into the land to spy out the land. And Rahab receives the angelos, the messengers, who are very clearly men, messengers, proclaiming the coming destruction of Jericho and to flee from the wrath to come. And I think here it simply refers to that whole apostolic band that Jesus has already said he is going to send out with all authority and power in heaven and earth that's been given to him to gather in his elect through the faithful preaching of the gospel. Finally then, Jesus sums up his prophetic warning with a parable as he explains this lesson from the fig tree. And so, Finally, let's consider our final point then. We've seen the lights extinguished. Uh, and now let's consider the lesson. And we've seen the Lord exalted. Now let's consider the lesson explained. Verses 32 through 35, we read From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. And so also when you see all of these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. And truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The fig tree was quite different than most of the trees of Israel in several respects. First, simply in that it was a deciduous tree, it lost its leaves. If you've seen a fig tree in winter, you know that it looks quite dead and and twiggy until the end of spring. 
and the beginning of summer. And then all of a sudden, those dead-looking twiggy branches begin to push new growth from their tips. And in contrast to that hard, woody growth of the previous year, the new growth is tender, and it begins to put out its leaves, and it begins to put out its blossoms. But secondly, the fig tree is often used as a metaphor or a way of speaking about the events of Israel. We've seen that multiple times in Matthew's Gospel, and so Jesus employs this fig tree as a parable for the things that are about to occur for Israel. When you see all these things, we keep coming back to those words, all these things. When you see all these things, then you know that He is near. He is at the very gates. Who is He? He is Christ. He is coming in judgment, bringing desolation on their house through the Roman armies. And they should pay attention. They should pay attention to the coming signs that they might pay it, even as they might pay attention to the blossoming fig. The language of all these things, it brings us back again, uh, all the way back to chapter 23 and verse 36. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And now he repeats those words again. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. For some of you, you're hearing this for the first time and you're thinking, of course, it's so clear. Makes perfect sense. But for others of you, your your mind is blowing up because you've never considered that these are not future things but things that have already occurred in the past. Can you imagine, though, what it must have been like for the disciples who heard these words from Jesus, who could barely believe them as they looked at the stones of that great temple, and then to see firsthand all of the signs that He warned them about coming to pass in their generation, leading up to 70 A.D., and then to hear the horrific accounts of the destruction of Jerusalem. Can you imagine them recounting these words of Jesus, how He he warned them about all of it? He told them in advance that all of these things were going to happen. And they saw Him, a man raised from the dead. They saw Him ascend into heaven on clouds. That once unimaginable reality, those seemingly permanent stones, not one was left upon another. They saw the Gospel going out throughout all the world. This Gospel that barely took traction during the life of Jesus Himself was now filling the earth. And how the exalted Christ, the exalted Son of Man, was giving it success, and His elect were being drawn in from every tribe and every tongue and nation. How it must have caused their faith to swell. How it must have caused their confidence in Christ to grow. And I want your confidence in Christ to grow. And so, 
Hear these final words well. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Whatever you think about this chapter and whether you agree with me or not, heaven and earth will pass away, but the words of Jesus will not pass away. I can remember some years ago we visited Yosemite. It's one of my favorite parks. I think it's just one of the most beautiful places on God's green earth. And I was looking up at Half Dome, and I was thinking just how ancient and permanent that massive boulder of a mountain seemed. That sheer cliff of solid rock towering on the horizon. If you haven't seen Half Dome, it's called Half Dome because it's half a dome. It comes up and then it falls sharply. But even as I was thinking of its permanence and how enduring it seemed, I immediately was checked in my thinking by the reality that half of that rock dome had already crumbled to the ground. That massive structure filled with climbers had already crumbled into pieces. Half of it lay in rubble long ago beyond living memory to be sure. But that seemingly permanent rock had crumbled. The earth feels solid. Things feel permanent to us. Because our lives are like a vapor. James says they are here today and gone tomorrow. Things feel permanent. Things feel like they will endure. They won't. You won't. The author of Hebrews quotes the Psalms and he says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Peter tells us that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Sound familiar? He's quoting his Lord. No one will know when it's coming. But then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And we could look at many passages of Scripture that teach these same things, but we could also just put it in the words of Jesus, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. God's Word is 100% true and reliable, more permanent and reliable than anything in heaven or on earth. Because it's His Word that called all of those things into existence. And so whether or not we perfectly understand all that He is saying here, we can understand without a shadow of a doubt that we can stake our whole lives on the words of Jesus Christ. And that's how I would end today. By asking you the question, 
What in this world can you stake not only your life on, but your eternal destiny on? What are you placing your hopes on? When the lights go out, and they will again, when the lights go out, where will your hope be placed? What is the foundation upon which you are building? Jesus says there are two kinds of builders in this world. There are wise builders and there are foolish builders. Foolish builders build their house on the sand. It's not permanent. The flood comes. It's destroyed. The wise builders build their house on the rock. And when the storms come and when the winds blow, the house stands because it has that firm foundation What can you build your life on? Teens, what can you build your life on? Your whole life is ahead of you, you feel. You think you have youth and so many years left. Let me tell you, everything in this world will fail you except Jesus Christ. The government will not keep its power, with all of its power, will not keep its promises. They will rise and they will fall. Your wealth and financial resources, the most wealth that families develop, we're talking about billionaires, don't last more than three generations. Your health, your youth, your strength. What are you building your life on? Where are you looking for security? When all the lights go out, where will you turn? Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you like a mother hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus would gather you up. We must turn to the risen and exalted Son of Man who sits in heaven bearing the marks of the cross to the one who endured the darkness of the torment of God's wrath for your sins. The lights went out at Calvary. And the lights went out for you. Turn to that one whose promises will not and cannot fail you. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the words of Jesus will not pass away. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, would you help us to see past the frailty of this present evil age? Would you help us to count the things of this world for what they are? Blessings to be sure, blessings to be enjoyed, but blessings mixed with grief and sorrow, and all things like a vapor that will pass away. But your word, Lord, will not pass away. And we have such clarity about that. We have seen your word come to fruition and fulfillment. Indeed, we see the Son of Man at the right hand of God in power and coming on the clouds. And Lord, we look for that day when you will come again on the clouds of glory. Even now, as you gather up your elect from every 
corner of the earth from the four winds through your messengers proclaiming the gospel, we know that one day you will come again and gather us up into your presence forever into a new heavens and to a new earth which will not be dissolved, which will not be rolled up like a scroll. And there will be no need for the sun and the moon and the stars, for you will be the light in our presence. We long for that day. Lord, help us to set our hopes and to build upon this foundation of Jesus Christ and his word. Amen. Amen.